Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, please visit our website at yourgracepoint.com. That's point spelled with an E on the end, P-O-I-N-T-E. The website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Now, here's Pastor Aaron Zelinsky. Go ahead and get ready to jump into the book of... Who are we looking at this week? Haggai, that's right. Haggai. Just want to make one point of order. It's not Haggai. <laughs> I know we hear it said that way all the time, but you can see the name. There's only one I, and it's all the way at the end. Um, it's Haggai. You guys are doing great. We know very, very little about Haggai. Um, like several of the other minor prophets, there's nothing given about his lineage. We don't know if he's royalty, if he's from obscurity. We don't know what tribe he's from. We don't know his place of residence, whether it's a prominent town, an insignificant town. Uh, we have no idea what's going on with that. But one thing we do have with Haggai is we have very specific dates for the prophecies and the words that he has given. Some of them just say, well, during the reign of this king or the reign of these kings, which gives you a a window. Some of them, you know, we're looking at 40 to 60 year windows that they were prophesying in. We know the month, the day, and the year for everything that this guy said. He must have been a great note taker. He wrote things down. You see it even in verse one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, which actually comes out to be August 29th of 520 BC. We know that. His next one was October 17th, and then two of them on December 18th, all in the year 520 BC. The only way we would be any more specific is if it said something like, during the evening sacrifice, or right after lunch, you know. But we don't know that. Zechariah also does the same thing in a couple of his prophecies. And interestingly, Haggai and Zechariah prophesied together. They were a team, so to speak. And we're going to see that in a couple of places. So that's a, a neat deal. There's only one New Testament quote of Haggai, and that's in Hebrews chapter 12 where he talks about the heavens and the earth being shaken. Uh, Haggai mentions that twice in two different prophecies that he gives, um, but it's picked up just one time in Hebrews 12. He's also the only one of the 12. There's something different. Let me see, does anybody recognize what's different about Haggai than all of the rest of the 12? No, that was, uh, look at Zephaniah, was that last week? Something different about his prophesying from any of the rest of the 12. What do you mean by a narrative? It is, so is Jonah. Jonah's also a narrative. Very, very similar, but Haggai is the only one with no poetry in it whatsoever. Because even in, in Jonah, his prayer when he's inside the fish is listed in verse, okay? But Haggai, it is all prose. It is pure narrative recounting the story. All of his words from the Lord are just recounted in in common speech. There's nothing dressing it up to make it uh, elevated in style or anything like that. No poetry whatsoever, which is just extremely rare. It's it's actually very unique in scripture for uh, the prophets. 
But this account, it is, it's a historical narrative. It's just recounting a story, but a, a significant thing weaved in and out of that story is God speaking to the people through Haggai and the people's responding to it. We also see this account recorded in a part of the story that Ezra recounts in the book of Ezra. And I want to draw attention to two places in Ezra. And if you want some more historical background for this, go read through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Nehemiah takes place after this, but it's still great perspective um, on what's going on there. But in Ezra chapter 5, he writes, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Isn't that a beautiful picture? These two prophets are there. They're giving the word of the Lord to them, but they're not just like talking at them. They are with them, supporting them, encouraging them, and that's what the word of God should be. We also see in chapter six of Ezra, he says, the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel, and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Now, what year were they, was Haggai, did he start this prophesying? In the second year of Darius the king, which was 520 BC, and they finished it in the sixth year of his reign. So four years later in 516, because remember from BC, you're subtracting as you go a little backwards, but it works out. They finished in 516 BC. Those things are historical facts. There are things you can check. Um, it, it's there. But what, what is fully going on? What's the deal with them rebuilding the temple? Who destroyed the temple when they destroyed Jerusalem? Babylon. When Nebuchadnezzar came in in 586 BC, they made a final end of Jerusalem. They burned down the temple. They broke down the walls. They completely leveled the whole place. What's happening here is this is during their return from exile. Okay, the exile took place in three different phases between 605 and 586 BC. And it was prophesied that after 70 years, they would return and rebuild and all of those things. Well, this is happening now. Um, in, in 520 BC, the temple actually began to be rebuilt in 536. You can see that in Ezra. In Ezra's writings, he talks about that. They went back to build the temple under Cyrus's decree. But if they started in 536 and in 520, he has to tell them to get up and keep working, something happened. If you read Ezra's account, there was a, Ezra's account, there was a lot of opposition to the building. A lot of the people around didn't want to see the temple rebuilt. Obviously, our enemy, the enemy of God and his people, does not want to see the temple be rebuilt. And the, the intimidation tactics were successful. The people stopped building. And the work went unfinished for 16 years. Now, while they stopped working on the house of God, what did they continue working on? Their own houses. 
yeah, God's house wasn't all that important, but their house, you know, I can't live in an unfinished house. I've got to make sure my house is good, my vineyards are good, my fields are good. Uh, all that stuff is going to be good for my stuff because my kingdom is pretty important to me. God's kingdom, eh, not so much. So Haggai told them to prioritize. He said, you guys got to get your priorities straight. You're living in these paneled nice houses, which would have been an elegant upper end house to be paneled uh, at that time. And some speculate that he's talking about the houses of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the governor and the high priest, because they would have been wealthy enough to have these nice houses. He's like, you guys are living in a nice house. Look at God's house. It's fallen apart still. It's never been rebuilt. You started it, you haven't finished it, and you're still worried about your own stuff. But the people obeyed. Isn't that amazing? We don't really see that happen a lot with the prophets in Scripture that the people actually listen to them. But here we see the people obeyed. They feared the Lord. They started working, and God starts blessing them. And so God, rather than sending another warning of judgment, he sends this promise of blessing and, and restoration that's going to come on the people. He has some wonderful promises about God's presence, that God is with them to build. He's going to let the, the glory of this house exceed the glory of the Solomon temple. And he even says that he's going to restore the kingship. At the end, you know where he says he's going to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring? Well, Zerubbabel is one of the descendants of David. He's in the royal lineage. And what God is saying is, I'm going to restore the line of David. And ultimately, we see Zerubbabel in Jesus's genealogy, not once, but twice. In both Matthew and Luke, if you know, one of them recorded Mary's genealogy, one of them recorded Joseph's genealogy, but both of them have Zerubbabel in it. Only him from, from David on, Zerubbabel is the only one that we actually see in both, him and his dad, because he's the son of Shealtiel. But that's significant. The one that God promised and said, I will make you the signet ring, it was specifically through him and his line that both ends came around to meet at Jesus on the throne. God's promises are fulfilled. But what does this say to us, right? How does the, something from 520 BC about them rebuilding a brick building in the Middle East um, after they return from exile and instead of their own panel houses, what does that actually have to say to us? I would contend that it says exactly the same thing to us. Exactly the same thing. In just a very slightly different way. We also need to prioritize building God's house rather than our own. But when we talk about house, we're going to mean something very different because it's not about brick and mortar. It's not about buildings. It's not about walls. It's not about roofs and foundations and all of the things in the middle of it. There's something different going on here. But we also see that very clearly he is still with us to empower us to build his house rather than build our own. So the first thing I want to look at is, number one, we need to see that his house has progressed. His house is different than what it was 2,500 years ago. 
It's something very, very different than what it was. See, God cared about his house being built, very much so. So much that he was sending them discipline. They're, they're, you know, they would plant all this crop and they wouldn't reap very much of a harvest. What harvest they did get would blow away in the wind. Uh, they, they had money, but they would put it in their pockets with holes in it. I mean, they, they just couldn't win for losing in anything because God cares about a house for his name being built. In fact, a house for his name is one of the most dominant themes throughout the story of God and his people in scripture. I mean, if you trace that from Genesis to Revelation, you see that God has always wanted a special place for his name to be among his people. That has always been and that always will be, it will not change. It's taken different forms throughout history and will continue to be shaped in that, but it's, it's always been the same. You see it initially, where did God first live with his people? Nope, before the tabernacle. In the garden, right? He lived in the garden with Adam and Eve. The garden was a designated place on the earth where God was with his people in a special way. Sin ruined that. Then they build the tabernacle in the wilderness as God's recreating his people and and restarting to form a people who would be his. And then they build the temple. And what, what do a lot of the furnishings in the temple remind you of? It starts with a G and ends with Arden. (laughs) The garden. I mean, what's the menorah, the lamp? What's that thing look like? A tree. And it has flowers and things weaved into it. There there are trees all over the decor. There are pomegranates and things hanging all around the inside. The, The temple is made to look like a garden. And that's that's very intentional. In fact, because the garden was essentially the temple the place where God's presence was with his people. But then that gets destroyed and we see uh, that the temple does not get uh, rebuilt after the last time it was destroyed. Jesus prophesied its destruction and in 70 AD, Rome came in and demolished Jerusalem and the temple just like the Babylonians did 586 or a little over 600 years earlier. But the temple had lost significance then because the temple is where God's presence physically dwelled with his people. But where at the time was God's presence residing? In the body of Jesus, personally. The temple was no longer the the thing anymore. Jesus's body had become the ultimate meeting place of God and his people. That's why Jesus, remember he said to the Jews, if they tear down that temple, he said, I'll rebuild this temple in three days if you tear it down. And John clarified that he was speaking of the temple of his body because his body was now the temple where his spirit was dwelling. But then as Jesus is ascending, what becomes the temple now? We are the church, his people, He sent us his spirit to live inside of us. And throughout scripture, we are referred to as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, what what else are we referred to as? Jesus's body. It never changed. The body of Jesus is still the place where God's presence resides on earth. Just like it was when he was in the flesh. So now the spirit still lives in his body. It's about us 
as his people. We are his house. We have to, we have to get that. We have to. This is such a huge point. It's where we're going to look at a couple of places in scripture just to affirm this, solidify this. We've got to see it. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul says, do you not know that you, and this is in good old Southern y'all, okay, this is not a singular you, this is a collective y'all. Do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and y'all are that temple. We've got it because we personalize this and we say, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's not what this is saying. Paul does say that later in 1 Corinthians. That's not what he's saying here. Here he's making the point that you all as the church, as the body, we collectively are the temple of of the Holy Spirit. And when he says, if anybody destroys it, he's not talking about suicide. Some people apply this to suicide. If if anybody destroys the body in suicide, then God's gonna destroy them. And they say, suicide, people go to hell automatically. That's not biblical. Scripture does not say that. It doesn't teach that. People don't go to hell because they fail to have an opportunity to repent for their last sin. If that was the case, and and you're, you're walking across the street, one car almost hits you. Maybe you say something you shouldn't have. The next car gets you while you're not paying attention. Too bad. You didn't get a chance to repent of that sin, right? That's not what it's about. This is talking about anybody who's bringing division to the church, anybody who is destroying the unity of the body, God will destroy them because he cares about his house deeply. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, you as Gentiles, as non-Jewish believers are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You see that language we're getting into? The foundation. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is, this is very clear language. When people talk about the need for a rebuilt temple, just say, hello, the temple's here. The world is not lacking a temple for God to reside in. It's here. We don't, God does not need a new temple built in, in the Middle East. He's never going to offer sacrifices again because Christ was sacrificed once for all. There's no need of another sacrifice, period. But Paul's not the only one. Peter also brings this up in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we love to, to, to think about that. I hope we get that and grasp that. And we need to know that this is not going to change. Okay, this is the final iteration of God's temple, of God's house. 
we, it carries that way through. Even in eternity, we are still the place where God is going to reside with us, no longer confined to a certain locale like in the garden. It's going to be all over with his people everywhere. God's presence will be with us. We see that in Revelation chapter 21. There's some things you've got to remember that Revelation is highly, highly, highly symbolic. Very, very little of it can be pressed literally. Okay, we just have to, to know that going into it. But there are some things, when you look at them, they, they speak very clearly. Even though it may not be literal, they're still very clear in what they're saying because they are literally saying something. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So what is this angel going to show John? The bride, the wife of the lamb. Who is the bride of Christ? The church. The church is the bride. We know that all throughout his, Israel was called God's wife. Um, all throughout the people of God are always referred to as the bride. Uh, God is not a polygamist. He has one bride. There's one people of God, not separate thing for Jews and Gentiles. There's one people of God, one new covenant, one bride, one wife. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the church. No. He says, showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. But what did he say he was going to show him? The bride. And what does John see? This big city floating down out of heaven. The city is a picture of the church. And it's going to be crystal clear when you look at it and you see how he described it. Having the glory of God. Where does God's glory dwell? In the temple. Who's the temple? We are. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And he goes on. Isn't there another? There should be a second half of that. If not, I'll just read it. I can read that. I can read that from the Bible, right? There we go. I knew it was there. I probably just had it in the wrong place. That would be on me. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. You see any connection to 12 to the people of God? Where at? Where can you see 12 with God's people? 12 tribes, 12 apostles. You might see both of those here. The gates had 12 angels. We also see at the beginning of Revelation that each church had an angel with it. And on the gates were the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed, no surprise there. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Again, no surprise. The gates and foundations of the, this city are the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. The old covenant, the new covenant, all brought together into one bride, one people of God. And when you see the description of it, if you keep reading further, it's described as a perfect cube, this city. The length, the width, the height, a perfect cube, which is also reminiscent of the most holy place in the temple was a perfect cube. Because that's where God's presence was. We are God's house. We have to see that and we have to see it very clearly because that 
that springboard, springboards so many different things in our understanding of who God is, of who we are, and what this life is about as God's people in his kingdom. You need to see that his house has progressed and we, as the church, not the building, but the people are the house. Secondly, we need to grasp that his kingdom has priority. We have to prioritize his house over our own house. Because remember, God, through Haggai, rebuked the people because they were too concerned about their house and not concerned enough about God's house. And that's what was going on. Establishing priorities is a crucial part of life. Did you know that? It really is. If you don't establish priorities, your life will not accomplish anywhere near as much as it could have. I won't say it won't accomplish anything, but it might be pretty close to that. We've got to have priorities. Even in the Marine Corps, when, when we would go on missions, we would have a, a discussion, at least a comment over what had priority. And usually it was between time or mission. One of those two things has to have priority. Because if, say, you've got an airstrike coming in and you've got to do what you've got to do and get out, time has priority. If you don't get done what you've got to do, you still need to get out because other things are coming. But sometimes mission had priority and it didn't matter how long it would take because that objective needed done. And if other circumstances came up and caused delays, you stay with it, you finish it because mission had priority. What has priority in your life? What has priority in your day? What has priority in those things? We need to be thinking about it. So building God's house, which is us, the church, has to have priority in our lives. So how do we build God's house now? If it's not brick and mortar, what are we building it with? With what? No? People. Remember he said, you all, like living stones, are being built. The people are the bricks. Each one of us is a brick in God's house. And how do we build that? We, we get more bricks, which is more people. Building God's house is the familiar call to be fishers of men. Jesus said, if you follow him, you'll become fishers of men. There's some logic going on there that if, if you follow him, then you'll become a fisher of men. If you're not a fisher of men, maybe you're not following quite as well as we ought to be because following him leads to that result. It's also the call to make disciples. It's the call to proclaim the gospel. In fact, we can go back to the garden again. It's the mandate to multiply and fill the earth because what is making disciples except reproducing followers of Jesus after your own kind? You see, God's plan really hasn't changed as much as we sometimes think. He still just wants us to accomplish what he wanted us to in the garden, to see the earth be filled with people who are his that he can live with and be among personally. That's all he wants, people to be with him, to love him, people for him to love and to bless and be a blessing too. To make it simple, because we tend to overcomplicate things, it's introducing people to Jesus and training them to follow him. 
Does that make it a little more manageable? You just introduce people to Jesus. Hi, Jim, this is Jesus. Jesus, this is Jim. Want you two to get to know each other. But now Jim is gonna have some questions because he's gonna have to learn how to, to talk to Jesus, how to hear from God's word, what the Holy Spirit is about. He's gotta understand what, who he is as a part of the temple now, um, all of these sorts of things. So you, you're gonna have to train him how to follow Jesus. You don't just teach him because sometimes we take teaching to be just cognitive stuff. Like we just give them all the facts. And then if he can pass a theology exam, great, he's in the club. No, that's not the way it works. Jesus said to teach them to observe everything he commanded. We have to train people. Okay, we are in the training business. We are like life trainers, teaching people how to live life the way of Jesus, modeling it for them, teaching them, showing them. But that mission of introducing people to Jesus and training them to follow him has to become the priority in our life. In fact, I would say it has to become a priority over our own life. You see the difference there? That, that's what it has to be. It has to be a priority over our own life. The most significant thing in our life is glorifying God through building his house. That's what we've got to be doing. So some very simple questions, uh, at least one question, whose house has priority in your life? God's or your own? Only you can answer that question and God knows if you're answering it truthfully or not. Does your house, your interests, your vocation, your wants, your desires, your recreation, are those your priority? Or is God's house your priority? And remember, when we talk about God's house, we're not talking about this building here of a local church. Is it your priority to introduce people around you to Jesus and train them to follow him? Or does more of your own stuff get prioritized than building his house? See, we have to lose our life in order to be building his house. It's gonna cost you, but that's okay because Jesus said, when you follow him, you have to die. He said, it'll cost you everything. It's the most expensive free thing you'll ever get. Following Jesus is free to do, but it costs you your life. And, th and that means it really will cost you your life. If you want to invest in somebody in a way to meaningfully train them to follow Jesus, you have to scrap some things in your life because you don't have time. I promise you, none of us have time to invest in somebody the way that they need invested in to become a mature follower of Jesus. So that means we have to make time. You're never gonna find time to disciple somebody. You're gonna have to make it. You're gonna to have to say, okay, this thing that I spend this much time on in my week, gotta say goodbye to it because it's not leaving me enough time to make disciples. This thing, when I'm, when I'm here being about my own business, I've gotta scrap that and be about his business. And it doesn't mean you have to necessarily even eliminate the things in your life, but the things that are in your life, you've gotta start using for his kingdom. See, when I'm at the pool, I could just be in my own world, in my own lane, just minding my business, saying, I'm getting my work at in. I love swimming. I enjoy it. This is my time. This is my me and Jesus time, right? Because nobody can talk to you while you're swimming laps. <laughs> it's great. Or I can say, God, this, I like to swim. Is there any way I can use my swimming to further your kingdom? 
and you meet people and you start talking to them and you build relationships and you can invest in them for the kingdom. If you're at the gym lifting weights or whatever you do recreationally, whatever you do vocationally, where's your priority while you're there? Is it about his house or is it on your own house? It's really the only two options. Either we're serving his interests or we're serving our own. It's one or the other. If we're not serving his, there's only one other option. So it'll cost you time. It'll cost you your life. But again, that's what you signed up for to follow Jesus. You freely laid down your life for him anyway. So why don't we just put that into practice? It's worth it. It's absolutely worth it to be building his house so much more rewarding than building your own. Incomparable. So much more. We have to grasp that though. We have to see that we are the house, the church is the house, and we have to grasp that his house needs the priority in our life. And that means we may need to make some changes. We may need to shuffle some things. We may need to eliminate some things. But it does us no good just to hear this and to see it and then do nothing. And I know that that can seem like a lot to take in, a lot to process. For many, this is a completely different paradigm of what it means to be a Christian. You know, in a lot of ways, we think that being a Christian means I, I pray the prayer, I pass the theology exam, I, I'm baptized, and now I go to church every Sunday. Isn't that what being a Christian is about? No, not at all. Any more than eating and drinking and wearing clothes is what it means to be a human. Like, those are things that people do, but that's not what it means to be a human. There, there's a whole different thing going on. To truly be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean we just do all the religious things. It means we fully surrender our life to Jesus and live for him and go make disciples. We've got to be out fishing for people, getting more bricks, more spiritual bricks for the house. But even though that can be rather daunting, especially if you're not really familiar much with uh, some of that way of talking about being a Christian, this third thing is, is a lifesaver. You can know that his presence has power, right? Where we feel inadequate, where we feel like we don't grasp it well enough to do it, we feel like we're not capable to do it, we don't know enough to do it, we're not mature enough in our faith, you know, I mean, even just simple things came up in our life group last week. Uh, you know, Paul makes the comment. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Are we willing to say that to a new believer? And say, hey, you know what? If you just spend time with me and pattern your life after mine, you're gonna get a great start in following Jesus. Are we confident enough in our walk with him to say that? It, we should be. At least we've got to get to that place. That's not saying you have to be perfect, but we've got to be growing. We've got to be maturing. But his presence has power. See, God will strengthen you to do the work on his house. He doesn't just call you to do this and leave you be. Just like the prophets didn't just say, hey, go build that house. They were with them, strengthening them, encouraging them while they were there. God is with us. Did you see that in Haggai when when the people responded in obedience and they started the work, God sent a message to them and said, I'm with you. Look at it in Haggai chapter uh, two or chapter one, verse 13. Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. 
I am with you, declares the Lord. What more powerful statement from God can you get? He's with you. And he said it again in chapter two, be strong, all you people of the land. In fact, I, I didn't want to go through reading all that, but he, he repeats this, be strong. He says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. Work, he's with you. Okay, sometimes we feel like we're Christians, we're saved by grace, not by work, so I don't have to work. That's a lie. Yes, we're saved by grace, but grace is not opposed to work. It's opposed to earning, not effort, okay? Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning, in that sense of works, earning something, it's not opposed to effort. In fact, because we've received God's grace, we should be putting forth the greatest effort of any humans that have ever lived. He says, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. And you know, when Jesus is talking about this command to build his house in the sense of making disciples, he says the exact same thing. Look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing or immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and, and behold, in other words, and take note, I'm with you always to the end of the age. What more could you ask for? Jesus says, I want you to build my house. You say, Jesus, that sounds really hard. He says, it's okay, I'm with you. What more? We don't need anything else. He is with us. And he, he promised in Acts 1.8, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Notice the, the empowering of the, the Spirit is for the work of witnessing, which we don't need to complicate that. Well, I don't know. I'm not much of a witness. All you got to do is introduce people to Jesus. I'm going to simplify that thing right there. Introduce people to Jesus. That's it. The Holy Spirit will empower you to do it. Jesus is with you to do it. And you need to know that his presence has power. And I mean real power. Too often there are a lot of powerless Christians and sometimes we feel very powerless. We need to be in communion with the Father a little more, filled and empowered with his spirit more because there is real power for life and for witness with the Holy Spirit. I mean real power. It's there. His presence is powerful. And he lives inside of you because we're the temple. We are where his presence dwells. And that presence is a difference maker. So I want to finish with just three questions. One of which we, we used to ask an awful lot. We kind of haven't as we've been working through the prophets, a little bit different focus. Who have you introduced to Jesus lately? Can you think of anybody this week, maybe this month, this year? When was the last time you introduced somebody to Jesus? That's part of building his house. Who are you training to follow him? Who is in your life as a young believer that you are training, mentoring, discipling, helping them become a student of Jesus? 
Is there anybody in your life that you can think of that you're training to follow him? Those are the two most basic things we've, we've been called to do in our walk with Jesus. Not commandments, you know, love God, love people are the greatest commands. That's saying the things he has tasked us with doing as those who love him and love people is to introduce more people to him and train them to follow him. Is there someone? My prayer is that God would help each one of us be building his house from now until he returns. Let's prioritize his house over our own. Let's be busy. His presence is with us to build. Work because he is with you to build. That's some of the most encouraging stuff. I, I don't know, but I was so excited just reading through Haggai and studying this and seeing just, it, it's amazing how it's really a, almost a one-to-one -one correspondence between what Haggai was telling them to do and what God is telling us to do. To build his house and be encouraged. He is with you to build. Thanks for listening to this Grace Point podcast produced by Cave Media and presented by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, the website again is yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Until next time, God bless you.